PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for Volume 89, November 2009. This month's research reports focus on a systematic review of constraint-induced movement therapy in children with cerebral palsy, intensive progressive exercise program for patients after single-level lumbar microdiscectomy, physical therapy patient management in the acute care setting, predicting performance on the NPTE, a conceptual model for optimal international service learning, EMG activity during step-up exercises in older adults, Supported treadmill stepping and walking attainment in preterm and full-term infants. And assessing patient goals in people with persistent musculoskeletal pain. This month, PTJ introduces Health Policy in Perspective, a new quarterly series on health policy issues and the PT's role in health policy. Available in print and online at www.ptjournal.org. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Rebecca Crake introduces the series in her editorial. Two articles start the Health Policy in Perspective series, A Systems View of Physical Therapy Care by Dr. Colleen Keegan and Cancer Prevention in Physical Therapist Practice by Nicole Stout. This month's issue also contains the 40th Mary McMillan Lecture, The Best We Can Be Is Yet to Come, given by Dr. Carolee Winstein, and the 2009 APTA Presidential Address, we Must See the Possibilities, given by APTA President Dr. R. Scott Ward. Audio podcasts of the Macmillan Lecture, APTA Presidential Address, and the 2009 Jules Rothstein Debate will be available online at www.ptjournal.org and on iTunes. First this month, Bound for Success, a systematic review of constraint-induced movement therapy in children with cerebral palsy supports improved arm and hand use. By Xiang Han Huang, Dr. Linda Fetters, Dr. Jennifer Hale, and Dr. Ashley McBride. This abstract is presented by Dave Corboisier. Constraint-induced movement therapy is a potentially effective intervention for children with hemiplegic cerebral palsy. The objectives of this systematic review are to 1. Investigate whether constraint-induced movement therapy is supported with valid research of its effectiveness, and 2. Identify key characteristics of the child and intervention protocol associated with the effects of constraint-induced movement therapy. 23 relevant studies were produced by a search of the following databases, Medline, Entree PubMed, Embase, Synol, PsychInfo, and Web of Science. The two objectives of the review were addressed by 1. Scoring the validity and level of evidence for each study and calculating evidence-based statistics if possible, and 2. Recording and summarizing the inclusion and exclusion criteria, type and duration of constraint, intervention and study durations, 
and outcomes based on the International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health, or ICF. A limitation of the study was that only studies published in journals and in English were included in the systematic review. Studies varied widely in type and rigor of design, subject constraint and intervention characteristics, and ICF level for outcome measures. One outcome measure at the body functions and structure level and four outcome measures at the activity level had large and significant treatment effects. These findings were from the most rigorous studies. Evidence from more rigorous studies demonstrated an increased frequency of use of the upper extremity following constraint-induced movement therapy for children with hemiplegic cerebral palsy. The critical threshold for intensity that constitutes an adequate dose cannot be determined from the available research. Further research should include the following. A priori power calculations, more rigorous designs, and comparisons of different components of constraint-induced movement therapy in relation to specific children, and measures of potential impacts on the developing brain. An invited commentary on this article by Dr. Jean Charles and Dr. Stephen Wolfe and the author response are available online and in print. Lead author Xiang Han Huang is a Doctor of Science student in the Department of Physical Therapy and Athletic Training at Boston University in Boston, Massachusetts, and currently is working in the Department of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. Next, an intensive progressive exercise program reduces disability and improves functional performance in patients after single-level lumbar microdiscectomy by Dr. Cornelia Kulig and 17 co-authors for the Physical Therapy Clinical Research Network. Restoration of physical function following lumbar microdiscectomy may be influenced by the postoperative care provided. The purpose of this study was to examine the effectiveness of a new interventional protocol to improve functional performance in patients who have undergone a single-level lumbar microdiscectomy. The study was conducted in physical therapy outpatient clinics. The participants were 98 patients, 53 male and 45 female, who had undergone a single-level lumbar microdiscectomy. The participants were randomly allocated to receive exercise and education, or education only. The exercise intervention consisted of a 12-week periodized program of back extensor strength and endurance training and mat and upright therapeutic exercises. The Oswestry Disability Index and physical measures of functional performance were tested four to six weeks post-surgery and 12 weeks later following completion of the intervention program. Because some participants sought physical therapy outside of the study, post-intervention scores were analyzed for both an as-randomized two-group design and an as-treated three-group design. In the as-randomized two-group analyses, exercise and education resulted in a greater reduction in Oswestry Disability Index scores and a greater improvement in distance walked compared with the education-only group. In the as-treated three-group analyses, post-hoc comparisons showed a significantly greater reduction in Oswestry Disability Index scores following exercise and education compared with the education-only and usual physical therapy groups. The limitations of this study include a lack of adherence to group assignment, 
disproportionate therapist contact time among treatment groups, and multiple use of univariate analyses. An intensive progressive exercise program combined with education reduces disability and improves function in patients who have undergone a single-level lumbar microdiscectomy. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Cornelia Kulig is Associate Professor of Clinical Physical Therapy in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. Next, Physical Therapist's Management of Patients in the Acute Care Setting, an Observational Study, by Dr. Diane Jetty, Dr. Rebecca Brown, Dr. Nicole Collette, Dr. Wendy Friant, and Dr. Lloyd Graves. Previous literature has not fully described physical therapists' management of patients across diagnoses in the acute care setting, or how that management might vary by facility. The purposes of this observational study were to describe patient management by physical therapists in the acute care setting and to examine variations in patient management across facilities. Fifty clinicians practicing at three academic medical centers in the northeastern United States agreed to participate in the study. Over a two-week period, the clinicians completed checklists indicating the details of patient visits. Logistic analyses, controlling for patient age and diagnosis, and accounting for clustering of data were conducted to examine the odds of patients having several categories of examinations, goals, and interventions. Participants provided over 2,300 visits to almost 900 patients. More than 75% of patients in each facility received examinations, goals, and interventions related to functional ability. The median number of visits per patient, duration of visits, and number of visits in which the patient was not treated varied across facilities. Patients with orthopedic conditions were more likely to receive several types of examinations, goals, and interventions than those patients with medical or surgical conditions. The odds of patients having examinations, goals, and interventions related to functional abilities were greater in Facility 2 than in Facility 1. The limitations of this study include the convenience sample, the use of an untested data collection tool, and the use of only age and diagnosis to control for case mix. This study of physical therapist practice in three acute care facilities suggests that patient management focuses on functional activity. There was no clear pattern of examinations, goals, and interventions related to specific diagnoses. A small degree of variation was found in practice across the facilities. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Diane Jetty is professor and chair in the Department of Rehabilitation and Movement Science at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. Academic difficulty and program-level variables predict performance on the National Physical Therapy Examination for Licensure, a population-based cohort study, by Dr. Daniel Riddle, Dr. Ralph Utzman, Dr. Dion Jewell, Stephanie Pearson, and Dr. Zhang Rong Kong. 
Several factors have been shown to influence first-time pass rates on the National Physical Therapy Examination, or NPTE. It is unclear to what extent academic difficulty experienced by students in a physical therapist education program might affect NPTE pass rates. The effects of institutional status, public or private, and Carnegie classification on NPTE pass rates also are unknown. The aim of this study was to quantify the odds of failure on the NPTE for students experiencing academic difficulty and for institutional status and Carnegie classification. This investigation was a retrospective population-based cohort study. Quota sampling was used to recruit a random sample of 20 professional physical therapist education programs across the United States. Individual student demographic, pre-admission, and academic performance data were collected, as were data on program-level variables and data indicating pass-fail performance on the NPTE. A generalized linear mixed-effects logistic regression model was used to adjust for confounding factors and to describe relationships among the key predictor variables, academic difficulty, institutional status, and Carnegie classification, and the dependent variable NPTE performance. Academic difficulty during a student's professional training was an independent predictor for NPTE failure. The odds of students who had academic difficulty relative to students who did not experience academic difficulty failing the NPTE were 5.89. The odds of NPTE failure also varied depending on institutional status and Carnegie classification. The findings related to Carnegie classification and institutional status should be considered preliminary. Student performance on the National Physical Therapy Examination was influenced by multiple factors. However, the most important potentially modifiable risk factor for poor NPTE performance likely is academic difficulty during professional training. Lead author Dr. Daniel Riddle is Otto D. Payton Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Medical College of Virginia campus of Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Next, a conceptual model of optimal international service learning and its application to global health initiatives in rehabilitation by Dr. Celia Paycheck and Dr. Mary Thompson. There is growing involvement by U.S. clinicians, faculty members, and students in global health initiatives, including international service learning. Limited research has been done to examine the profession's increasing global engagement or the international service learning phenomenon in particular, and no research has been done to determine best practices. This study was intended as an early step in the examination of the physical therapy profession's role and activities in the global health arena within and beyond academics. The purposes of this study were, one, to identify and analyze the common structures and processes among established international service learning programs within physical therapist education programs, and two, to develop a conceptual model of optimal international service learning within physical therapist education programs. A descriptive exploratory study was completed using grounded theory. Telephone interviews were completed with 14 faculty members who had been involved in international service, international learning, or international service learning in physical therapist education programs. Interviews were transcribed and transcriptions were analyzed using the grounded theory method. 
four major themes emerged from the data. Structure, reciprocity, relationship, and sustainability. A conceptual model of and a proposed definition for optimal international service learning in physical therapist education were developed. Seven essential components of the conceptual model are a partner that understands the role of physical therapy, community-identified needs, explicit service and learning objectives, reflection, preparation, risk management, and service and learning outcome measures. Essential consequences are positive effects on students and community. The conceptual model and definition of optimal international service learning can be used to direct development of new international service learning programs and to improve existing programs. In addition, they can offer substantive guidance to any physical therapist involved in global health initiatives. Lead author Dr. Celia Paycheck is assistant professor in the physical therapy program College of Health Sciences at the University of Texas at El Paso in El Paso, Texas. She is vice chair of the American Physical Therapy Association's Cross-Cultural and International Special Interest Group. Next, comparison of gluteus medius muscle electromyographic activity during forward and lateral step-up exercises in older adults by Dr. Vicki Stemmons-Mercer, Dr. Michael Gross, Subhashini Sharma, and Aaron Weeks. Step-up exercises are often suggested for strengthening the hip abductor muscles and improving balance in older adults. However, little is known about whether the forward or lateral version of these exercises is best for activating the hip abductor muscles. The purpose of the study was to examine the electromyographic amplitude of the gluteus medius muscles bilaterally during forward and lateral step-up exercises. The study design involved single-occasion repeated measures. 27 community-dwelling adults, 7 men and 20 women with a mean age of 79 years participated in the study. The subjects performed forward and lateral step-up exercises while the surface electromyographic activity of the gluteus medius muscles was recorded bilaterally. Pressure switches and dual force plates were used to identify the ascent and descent phases. Subjects were instructed to lead with the right lower extremity during ascent and the left lower extremity during descent. Electromyographic activity of the gluteus medius muscle was significantly greater for lateral step-up exercises than for forward step-up exercises for the left lower extremity during the ascent phase and for both lower extremities during the descent phase. In addition, electromyographic activity of the right gluteus medius muscle was significantly greater during ascent than during descent for both exercise directions. Study limitations include use of a convenient sample and collection of limited information about participants. Step-up exercises are effective in activating the gluteus medius muscle with lateral step-up exercises requiring greater activation of the gluteus medius muscle than forward step-up exercises. Further study is needed to determine whether exercise programs for hip abductor muscle strengthening in older adults should preferentially include lateral over forward step-up exercises. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Vicki Stimmons-Mercer is Associate Professor in the Division of Physical Therapy, Department of Allied Health Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 
associations of supported treadmill stepping with walking attainment in preterm and full-term infants. By Hong Ji Lo, Pei Shan Chen, Dr. Wu Shun She, Dr. Quan Hua Lin, Dr. Tung Wu Lu, Dr. Wei J. Chen, and Dr. Se Feng Jiang. Treadmill training in supported stepping has been used as part of rehabilitation programs for children with neurodevelopmental problems to facilitate earlier onset of walking. However, information concerning the developmental continuity between supported stepping and walking is limited. The aims of this study were to longitudinally examine supported stepping in preterm and full-term infants and to explore the step parameters associated with walking attainment. A cohort study with a longitudinal follow-up design was used. 29 preterm infants and 20 full-term infants were examined bimonthly with supported stepping on a treadmill from 7 months of age until walking attainment or 18 months of corrected age. The associations between step variables and walking outcome were examined using Cox proportional hazard regression and logistic regression. Walking attainment for preterm infants was later than for full-term infants. The following were found to be associated with age of walking attainment in all infants. The percentage of alternating steps, hip-knee correlation, hip-ankle correlation, and asymmetry ratio of stance time of stepping movement from 7 to 9 months of corrected age. At 7 months of corrected age, manifestation of at least three of the following four step features predicted walking attainment prior to 11 months of corrected age. Percentage of alternating steps of 80% or more. A hip-knee correlation of 0.37 or less. A hip-ankle correlation of 0.73 or greater and an asymmetry ratio of stance time of 1.40 or less. Failure to achieve such competencies at 7 or 9 months of corrected age was predictive of failure in walking attainment by 15 months. The limitations of this study included a small sample size and commencement of stepping assessment as early as 7 months of corrected age. The emergence of walking may involve cooperation of alternating pattern generation interjoint coordination and interlimb coordination in supported stepping in preterm and full-term infants. The identified step predictors may assist clinicians in designing appropriate treadmill training programs for those infants with delayed walking. Lead author Hong Ji Lo is a doctoral student at the School and Graduate Institute of Physical Therapy at the National Taiwan University College of Medicine in Taipei, Taiwan, and is lecturer in the Department of Physical Therapy at Hongguang University in Taichung, Taiwan. Last this month, the Patient Goal Priority Questionnaire is moderately reproducible in people with persistent musculoskeletal pain by Parnila Asenluf and Kim Sielbeck. The Patient Goal Priority Questionnaire is a patient-specific measure for identification of behavioral goals and evaluation of clinically significant changes. The use of such a measure in clinical settings and research requires that identified goals be consistent over time. Self-reports of behaviors related to the goals should be reliably estimated. The purpose of this study was to estimate chance-corrected agreement and test-retest reliability of the Patient Goal Priority Questionnaire. Chance-corrected agreement between the Patient Goal Priority Questionnaire and a similar 
therapist-guided goal identification tool, the Patient Goal Priority List, also was estimated. A correlative and prospective design with three measurement points was used in the study. Fifty-four people who consulted physical therapists in primary care for persistent musculoskeletal pain were included in the study. Analyses of chance-corrected agreement and test-retest reliability of the patient goal priority questionnaire were done at the first and second measurement points. Chance-corrected agreement between the patient goal priority questionnaire and the patient goal priority list also was analyzed at the first and third measurement points. The percentage of agreement on content of the priority lists of the patient goal priority questionnaire at the first and second measurement points was 52%. Cohen-Kappa values for agreement of rankings range between 0.47 and 0.64. Test-retest reliability coefficients for the self-report scales of the patient goal priority questionnaire ranged from 0.35 to 0.81. Chance-corrected agreement decreased when physical therapists were involved in the goal identification process using the patient goal priority list. This study had the following limitations. 1. Varying item content and a small heterogeneous sample possibly increased variation and the standard error of measurements. 2. The feasibility of using traditional approaches to psychometric evaluation of patient-specific measures is questionable. Chance-corrected agreement and test-retest reliability of the patient goal priority questionnaire were moderate. Involving a physical therapist in the goal identification procedure possibly introduced further bias. The size of the measurement error must be taken into account when using the patient goal priority questionnaire for estimations of clinically important changes. A bottom line and an e-appendix for this article are available online. Lead author Dr. Parnila Asenluf is assistant professor in the Department of Neuroscience in the section of physiotherapy at Uppsala University in Uppsala, Sweden. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626 Five nine three seven eight two five.